the Department of Homeland Security, TSA, and the FBI have all combined to create a watch list. They've compiled a list of suspected terrorists and suspicious individuals. Board an airplane and TSA screeners will check your name against the watch list. TSA takes its job seriously. No stone goes unturned. They are watching. They are watching you. Just ask eight-year-old Mikey Hicks, a New Jersey Cub Scout. For every time Mikey walks onto an airplane, he gets patted down by TSA agents. The first time it happened, little Mikey was just two years old, believe it or not. More recently, the Hicks boarded a vacation flight to the Bahamas, but Mikey was detained. Supervisors were called in. I mean, he looks so sinister, doesn't he? Little Mikey was subjected to several passes of the x-ray wand. It disturbed the whole family. Mikey's mom commented, up your arms, down your arms, up your crotch. Someone is patting your eight-year-old down like he's a criminal. A terrorist can blow up his underwear and not get caught. But my eight-year-old can't walk through security without being frisked? I think I'd be upset too. With over 13,500 names on the TSA watch list, apparently the name Mikey Hicks sends up a red flag. It's pretty obvious the government isn't profiling passengers. There are not too many terrorists in the second grade. You know, it's odd that an eight-year-old Cub Scout is on the federal government's watch list. But if you are a Christian this morning... You also are on a watch list. You're listed on the world's watch list. And it's not just an issue when you board an airplane. Follow Jesus and your life will be scrutinized. At home, at work, at school, at play. The world is watching. The world is watching you. Every day you're being patted down. You know, people have a way of frisking without touching. You know, they needle you to hear what you're going to say in response. They egg you on just to see how far you'll go. They push your button to see how you'll react. Welcome to life between the crosshairs. Decide to live a Christian life and your days of moving under the radar are over. A witness for Jesus is going to attract some heavy scrutiny. Inquiring minds want to know. And here's why. As a Christian, you claim to have spiritual power. You claim a relationship with Jesus. You say that you know God. And deep down inside, most people long for the same experience. That's why they're examining our lives for evidence to see if we're telling the truth. Hey, if people like how we act, they'll want to know what makes us tick. Now, here's a memorable quote. Hope you never forget this. Most people who become a Christian do so because they know another Christian. Whereas most people who don't become a Christian do so because they know another Christian. It's true. Christianity's strongest endorsement and biggest deterrent 
are Christians. Here in 1 Peter 2, we've learned that God has made us living stones. He's given us a life animated by Jesus and rock solid and durable. Now he wants us to build our lives on the rock. And Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the linchpin of every area of my life. It's all connected to him. How I do family, how I do parenting, how I do my marriage, how I do sex and career and money and play and school and food and friends, it all leans and rests on the cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation and inspiration of all that I am and all that I do. I stack my life on him. He becomes crucial. Pull Jesus out of our life and it'll crumble like a house of cards. Jesus needs to be the keystone in our lives. Today is our third week in chapter 2. In week 1, Peter told us that we've been made living stones. In week 2, we're now living on the rock. But here in week 3, Peter is teaching us that we're also living in the world. That our lives are on display. He writes to us in verse 12. He says, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. They're observing us. They're watching us. We're on the world's watch list. And Jesus wants his followers in thought and in word and in deed to live in such a way that even our doubters will glorify God. First Peter teaches us how that the life we live really does matter. And he addresses our conduct in three venues. As citizens, then as servants, and then as spouses. The rest of chapter 2 is about good citizenship, then good servanthood, and then in chapter 3 next week, we'll take up the subject of good spouses. Now here's the key principle in today's text, verse 13. Therefore, submit yourselves. When it comes to human interactions, the operative word for the Christian is submit. Citizens should submit to the government. Christian servants and employees should submit to their masters or bosses. Wives should submit to their husbands. Even husbands should submit to their wives. Understand this virtue of submission. This is derived from deep within the very nature of God. The triune God exists in submission. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are in submission to one another. The Son doesn't do as He pleases. He does the will of the Father. The Spirit testifies of the Son. All three are in total and perfect submission. That's why whenever you exhibit an attitude of submission, you are reflecting the very image of God. The Greek word translate, translated submit, it's compound word, hupo, which means under, and tasso, which means to arrange, to arrange under. Submission is the opposite, you see, of living an independent life. It's an attitude and a lifestyle that accommodates and cooperates with other people. Christians are other-centered. 
Jesus died because he loves people. And his love should cause us to arrange our lives around the needs of other people. Rather than a my way or the highway kind of a person. A Christian is a person who's willing to take a step back if needed. Or even a step down to let someone else step up. A Christian doesn't always have to beat out the other guy. Or be in charge or come in first. His or her desires accommodate other people's needs. Here's a great question. Is your approach to life more cooperative or more combative? You know, sometimes we think that submission is the antithesis to leadership. Not so. Even Christian leaders have a submissive bent, or they should. You should never give orders until you first learn how to take orders. Rather than self-promotion, the goal of true leadership is serving others. Godly leadership is servant leadership. All Christians need to learn to submit. A Christian should submit, but submit to whom? Well, Peter answers that. He says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Well, not only are we under the laws of God, but we're also under the laws of the land. One translation renders the word ordinance here as human institution. Another translation uses the phrase human authorities. The point is, is that we're to submit to every human authority. Jesus wants us to submit to those who occupy positions of authority. That means emperor. That means president. That means senator. The governor. The commissioner. The judge. The policeman. The building inspector. The teacher. The coach. The neighborhood association. The parents. And because I mentioned them last, doesn't make them least important. Oh no, if you live under your parents' roof, you're under their authority. Now before I, I go further on this, let me acknowledge that these concepts of authority and submission, <laughs> we Americans, we don't get this as well as we should. You know, Americans have sort of a disdain against authority and submission in these topics. Americans are trained to question everything and everyone. We've seen so few examples of servant leadership. We're suspicious of anyone who aspires to a position of authority. We assume that they're going to use it selfishly. Americans are really pretty arrogant too. I hate to tell you this. But have you noticed that all talk show callers know more than the president and all his advisors? Have you noticed that? Everyone. I mean, Joe from Snellville. I mean, he knows more than the whole federal government combined. Every employee, have you noticed this? Every employee can do a better job than their boss. Have you noticed this? Just ask them. Just talk to them. They can do a better job than their boss. Have you noticed this? Every teenager is smarter than their parents. Of course they are. I mean, you hear it all the time. Let me tell you what our problem is. Our problem is pride. We don't do real well with this idea of submission and authority. Tragically, here's the all-American trait that hinders us. Rebellion to authority is in our DNA. Our nation was born in rebellion through a revolution. And I think we just rebelled from time to time just to stay in practice in case a real revolution is ever needed in the future. Now certainly, 
there are times when rebellion against authority is necessary. And the Bible is crystal clear in defining legitimate civil disobedience. When direct obedience to human authority causes you to disobey God's authority, then rebellion is appropriate. Not even appropriate, but mandatory. You remember when the Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill all of the male babies, the Hebrew babies there in Egypt? They refused, and they were right. When the Jewish Sanhedrin ordered Peter and John not to preach anymore in Jesus' name, they refused to submit to authority, and they continued to preach, and they were right. These were both examples of the proper occasion to disobey human authority. As Peter put it, we ought to obey God rather than men. When Corey Ten Boone hid Jews in her attic in defiance of the Nazis, when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat in the front of the bus for a white passenger, when an employee goes against his boss's orders and refused to lie to sell the product, when a Muslim teenager chooses to become a Christian even though it's forbidden by her parents to do so, these are all examples of appropriate disobedience to authority. But here's the deal for you and me. This coming week, very few of us are going to have to choose between obedience to God and obedience to man. 99% of the time, our lives are conflict-free. Obeying God and obeying man are congruent. I mean, pay your taxes. That's not an objection of conscience. You can, that's what God wants you to do. That's what man wants you to do. Pay your taxes. Drive the speed limit. I mean, limit your lunch hour to an hour. That's why they call it a lunch hour. Do the homework the teacher assigns. If your boss has an opinion about what you're doing, pay attention to their opinion. If your dad says be home at 11.30, then just get yourself home at 11.30. Don't buck the authority that God has placed in your life. Rather, submit. Peter says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Notice Peter says that government was sent by him. The government was sent to us by God. You know, the book club and the JCs, and the dugout club, they're all human inventions. God created three institutions and only three institutions. He created marriage and the family. He created the church and he created human government. They were all God's idea, all three. Now earlier here in verse 9, Peter calls us a holy nation. We're citizens of heaven, but we're also citizens of the country in which we live. Evangelist D.L. Moody, he summed up his views on Christian citizenship in one sentence. He said, heaven is my home, but I vote in Cook County, Illinois. In other words, we are citizens in heaven and on earth. And we need to be submissive in both arenas. And notice in verse 14, we're told that human government has two purposes. It's for the punishment of evildoers... 
and for the praise of those who do good. Every government has a twofold mission to punish evil and to praise good. Now, this means, <laughs> boy, I have a hard time saying this, but it's the truth. I'm just giving the truth. That's my job, the truth. Next time, though, you turn a corner and you see a big fat motorcycle cop sitting on the seat of his bike pointing that radar gun right at you, according to Peter, according to God, according to me, he has been sent there by God. Now, I've said it. And I do believe it. Somewhere deep down inside, I do believe it. He was sent there by God. God has created government to keep order and to punish the lawbreakers. Now, we all know about government's efforts to punish. But, you know, there's another side to this, too. They, they are to punish evil, but then they're also to praise good. Recently, I read about a novel concept. Boy, I wish this would catch on. A police tactic being practiced now in South Windsor, Connecticut. Traffic cops are pulling cars over and giving out tickets, but the tickets read, your driving was great and we appreciate it. The police are passing out $2 rewards for obeying the speed limit and wearing seat belts and using turn signals and the proper use of child restraints. They're also praising good. Carl Lomax, a resident of South Windsor, he says this. He says, you're always nervous when you see the police lights come on. It takes a second or two to adjust to the officer saying, thanks a lot for obeying the law. It's about the last thing you'd expect. Wow. We should send all the Gwinnett, all of those Snellville cops. We need to send those cats to South Windsor, Connecticut, and let them learn about a little positive reinforcement. Boy, we could give that a try. Well, government's job is to punish evil and to praise good. Peter goes on to say in verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Now, as a Christian, I'm free. I am free from the opinions and the judgments of men. Hey, I'm accepted by God. So in one sense, it doesn't matter what you think about me. I don't need anybody else's approval. Yet some Christians use that line of thinking as an excuse for careless and reckless living. Now think this through. I might not need your approval. But as a representative of Jesus, I can't ignore your opinion. I need to care about the impression that I make. My life is an ad for godliness. And this is why a Christian needs to be a more conscientious citizen and a nicer neighbor and a better person. For by caring what other folks think about me, I, I can make a good impression for Jesus. I can shut up the critic. I can add to the common good. I can even bring glory to God. He also tells us in verse 17 to honor all people. I, I love this story I read. It's from a Guidepost article. It was written by a woman named Joanne Jones. 
And she writes of her experience in nursing school. She says, during my second year, our professor gave us a pop quiz. I breezed through the questions until I read the last one. What is the first name of the woman who cleans the school? Surely this was some kind of a joke. I'd seen the cleaning woman, but how would I know her name? I handed in my paper, leaving the last question blank. Well, before class ended, a student asked if the same question counted toward our grade. The professor replied, absolutely. In your career, you'll meet many people. All are significant. They deserve your attention and care, even if all you do is smile and ask their name. Joanne writes, I've never forgotten that lesson. I also learned our cleaning woman's name, Dorothy. Hey, do you honor all people? I want you to think about this. Every person you have ever laid eyes on, every person you will ever lay eyes on, was created in God's image and was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that, my friend, makes them worthy of your respect and your honor. Even that obnoxious person, even that frustrating person in your life, you know what? They have a story. You know, there are reasons people do what they do. And if you understood their story, if you took the time to listen to their story, their particular reasons might make you a lot more compassionate toward that person. We need to honor all people. And then Peter says we need to love the brotherhood. Hey, when you became a Christian, you got God as your father. Oh, boy, that's what you like. But here's what you weren't so sure of. You got me as your brother. Wow. We're, we're all members of God's family. White, black, red, yellow, legal, illegal, employed, unemployed, underemployed. Hey, we all live in the same hood. It's the brotherhood. I'm sure you've heard the old saying, you can choose your friends but not your family. <laughs> That's true even when it comes to your spiritual family. And I've watched some of you, I'm afraid some of you guys, you're like spiritual teenagers. You know how teenagers are. They're embarrassed to be seen with their parents out in public. They get out of the car three blocks ahead of time just so they don't have to be seen with their parents in front of their peers. I've seen you. You're like a spiritual teenager. You're embarrassed by the rest of the family of God. We're not cool enough for your friends. And so you avoid us. You rush out of church right after the sermon so that nobody will see you in public with the rest of the body of Christ. You know, here's a big suggestion for you. Rather than grumble and complain about your brothers and sisters in Christ, rather than shop around to find a church that's more fitting to your social standing, rather than fuss with fellow church members, why don't you just try this? Try this. Love the brotherhood. Just love the brotherhood. They might just love you back. And then Peter writes, fear God. Respect and reverence God's authority above all others. For all authority is derived from God's authority. God is the one who gives sanction to human authority, to kings and parents and police and husbands and pastors. In submitting to any form of authority, our first priority is to fear God. And then Peter writes, honor the king. In our case, Uncle Sam can definitely use some Christian brothers. And so we need to honor the king. That means 
honest tax returns and keeping up your emissions and driving the limit and adhering to the building codes and watering your lawn on only the days allowed and pulling over for a fire truck and thanking a soldier when you see him. These are all ways that in our day and in our land we can honor the king. And understand, it's easier today for us to honor the king than it was in Peter's day. The king of Rome in 60 AD was an evil tyrant, a man named Nero. He was lewd and barbaric and godless. He was a madman, drunk on power, and he hated Christians. He dipped us in wax and lit us up as torches to light his parties. He fed us to the lions. He led us into the arena to be slaughtered for sport by the gladiators. Nero was a dishonorable fellow, yet Peter says of him, honor the king. If Peter were here today, he would tell us, look, if you can't honor the king's character, at least you can respect the uniform. You can honor his position. Remember, remember Peter said this about the man who would end up ordering his crucifixion. And I suppose if Peter could honor Nero, then we can find some honor for our elected leaders as well. Well, notice in verse 18, the operative word is still submit. But now Peter applies it to servants and masters. Or in our case, employees and bosses. He says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Now, a Christian employee is a servant. And Jesus told his disciples, the greatest among you is the servant of all. This means that a Christian at work needs to be as good and faithful and effective as an employee as possible. Regardless of what kind of boss oversees that Christian. If you've got a crabby, mean-spirited boss who tries to make your life miserable, here's one option. You can quit that job and you can find another job. But here's what's not an option if you're a Christian. You can't slough off. You can't put out a half-hearted effort. You can't be a poor employee. Here he tells us, as servants, we need to be submissive to our masters with all fear. Now, in Peter's day, employees didn't have the option to jump from job to job to job. Workers were often indentured servants. Some were even slaves. One thing you need to understand that in Old Testament Israel and in the Roman Empire of Peter's day, slavery was a much different institution than it became in the 18th and 19th centuries. Later, slavery taught free Afri or targeted free Africans who were violently stolen from their families and were taken overseas. They and their ancestors became another man's property. And if, and, and if this had been the form of slavery common in New Testament times, the New Testament writers would have come out and spoke in vehement opposition against it. For this is an abomination in the eyes of God. The problem, though, is that in ancient times, slavery often had a redeeming purpose. Rather than being racially targeted, Slavery was a financial vehicle for a person in trouble. It was a form of bankruptcy. It was a means by which a poor man 
could work off his debts. He would sell himself into slavery until he became financially solvent again. Often he did better working for his master than he did on his own, and he chose to remain as a slave. Historian Murray Harris, he says this, he says that in Greek and Roman culture, slaves were often more educated than their masters. And they were never segregated from the society, and usually they were slaves for only a short period of time. Slaves participated in and contributed to the culture at large. Again, they were more like employees than what we think of as slaves. And as Christians, according to Peter, it was their calling to be faithful and diligent servants. He writes in verse 19, he says, For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. It's commendable if you suffer wrongfully and do it with a joyous attitude. And I want you to know this can happen to you. You can suffer wrongfully. We live in a fallen world, and as a child of God, you can get a raw deal. Christians are not immune to suffering wrongfully. I'll never forget walking to my car after church one night. It was out in the parking lot right over here. And I walked out to the car, and I found that it had been shelled with raw eggs. Here I was, in the church building, teaching God's Word, serving the Lord, while someone drove through the parking lot and egged my car. And I immediately started trying to figure out in my mind who this was. Where was Pastor James all day? Did I see him slip away? <laughs> what about the secretaries? Man, have I, have I created a grievance here? You know, I'm thinking. Finally, I just concluded, you know, that I'd suffered wrongfully. I'd been persecuted for Jesus' sake. Someone had gotten angry at the message and took it out on the messenger. They'd egged the postman. That's what they'd done. On my way home that night, though, I, I drove through the BP gas station up here in order to clean off the egg. I didn't want the egg setting on the car, so I went through the gas station and listened to the radio. And, and, I, and I was driving through the, the car wash there, and then it dawned on me. I said, man, this costing me five bucks. And I got really angry. I said, these vandals have cost me five bucks. And I started copping an attitude. God, I've been serving you and it's costing me five bucks. And at that very moment, no joke, at that very moment, guess who came on the radio? I did. <laughs> it was one of those 30-minute spots that we did that highlighted one of the eight Beatitudes. Suddenly, my voice comes on the radio. And guess which Beatitude was in the rotation? <laughs> Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. No joke. It was wild. Here I am reminding myself over the radio to rejoice in my heavenly reward. I never thought God would allow me to have a radio ministry so I could minister to me. The story did have a happy ending. The person who threw the eggs eventually came forward and apologized. And, and today, uh, we're friends. Yet, boy, I learned a lesson that night. There are times when God allows His kids to endure grief. 
and to suffer wrongfully. It's not your fault. You're just trying to do good and serve God, and it comes back to bite you. Did you know you can get hurt doing good? You can. And you get tempted to throw in the towel. Who needs this hassle? For a pastor, this is an occupational hazard. It happens often. But it can also happen to all Christians. In fact, if it hasn't happened to you yet, it eventually will. And when it does, I want you to remember Peter's logic. He says, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Here he draws a great distinction. You know, there's a big difference between suffering for righteousness' sake or Jesus' sake and just suffering because you're being a jerk. It's a big difference. I mean, I know Christians who are self-righteous and they're pompous and they're prideful and they're unloving and their coworkers and their neighbors laugh at them. Oh, what hypocrites! And yet when they hear those slights and those insults, they just stick out their chest a little, little further and, and they, oh, look at me. I'm being persecuted for Jesus' sake. No, you're not. You're being persecuted because you're a jerk. Christianity takes a black eye when a hypocritical Christian sulks about like they're a martyr when they're really just a dweeb. Don't be a dweeb. Rejoice if you're being persecuted for being a saint. Repent if you're being persecuted for being a snob. Verse 21 tells us, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And here he quotes Isaiah 53, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now, now here's the example Jesus left us. I want you to stay with me here. Here's the example Jesus left behind. Jesus was a shock absorber. Jesus was a shock absorber. Jesus allowed the rage to end with him. Hey, this world specializes in swapping insult for insult. Have you noticed we live in an angry world? I mean, the boss is angry and he takes it out on old Job. He slaps him around at the office. And then Joe comes home, and what does he do? He verbally slaps around the kids. And then his boys go out, and they slap around the neighbor's kids. And the whole world just exchanges slap for slap, and we end up just plain slap happy. Hatred passes from person to person until, until it comes to a Christian. And that Christian stops the chain reaction. We've been called to imitate the Lord Jesus. When he was reviled and insulted, he, he didn't revile in return. When Jesus was slapped, he refused to slap back. When he suffered, he didn't threaten to retaliate. Jesus absorbed the angst. When the frustration of sin and the fallout from a fallen world reverberated back at Jesus in the form of the cross... Jesus returned love for hatred. He absorbed the slaps, 
Rather than respond with the back of his hand, he responded with an outstretched hand. Jesus showed mercy to the merciless, and as his disciples, so should we. If you're being slapped around by people or by circumstances this morning, I'm not suggesting you just sort of suck it up and invite a bloody nose. No, to the contrary. I'm telling you, you need to fight back, but not as a slapper, rather as a lover. When the world slaps at you, you need to deck them, but you need to deck them with love. You need to fight evil with good. You know, weak people have to retaliate to show their strength. But real strength can absorb the blow and transform its impact into the opposite response. Jesus retaliated, but he did so in love. And he's calling his followers to do the same. On the cross, Jesus was a shock absorber, but that's not all he did. He generated some shock waves of his own. Notice verse 24 adds, Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. You know, today the popular treatment for addictive behavior is a 12-step program. But God has a one-step plan. It's called the cross. On the cross, Jesus put an end to sin. He bore our sin in his own body. But notice, it's not the sin that dies. We're the ones that are crucified with Christ. Here's what happens. Often we pray that God kills the fleshly lust, that God kills the out-of-control desire that torments us. But it's not the sin that dies. It's us that die to the sin. We've been crucified with Christ. God changes us. You see, sin isn't less attractive to a Christian. But when a person becomes a Christian, they get less attracted to the sin. In the temptation situation, we want God to remove the temptation or to make it less tempting. We're focusing on the wrong end of the temptation. God's solution is to purify me, to change my identity, to change my desires. As Peter puts it, We've died to sins so that we can live to righteousness. The more I'm focused on who I am in Christ and what Jesus did for me, the stronger my identity grows. Righteous desires begin to replace unrighteous ones. This is why I say the cross is the cure-all. It's God's one-step approach. And then Peter even reminds us, he says, By his stripes you were healed. The blows absorbed in Jesus' body have become the antidote for our sin and even our sickness. You understand how a vaccine works? It's a weakened form of the germ itself. The body fights against the vaccine in order to build up the immunity in preparation for contracting the actual disease. Well, this is how our healing works. Sin's pain and suffering was absorbed by the body of Jesus as if it were a vaccine. The hurt inflicted on Jesus creates healing through Jesus. Pain absorbed is now love released. It's his wounds that now produce our well-being. Isn't that amazing? And then the chapter closes. I love this verse. For you were like sheep going astray but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You know, throughout the scripture, believers are compared to sheep. And you know why? Sheep are really dumb. 
and so are we. You know, they'll follow each other off a cliff if you let them. And we like sheep, like dumb sheep, have lost our way. We've gone astray. Thankfully, Jesus found us. And he's brought us back to himself. And now he is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And here's what this means. You are on a watch list. The world is watching you. The world is scrutinizing your life. They want to find evidence in you of God's involvement. When you submit to human authority, that causes people to believe that God has authority. When people see you honoring other people, they conclude that you're fearing God. When they see you working hard, they realize, obviously, you have a higher boss that you're serving. When they see you enduring unfair treatment, they realize you represent a Savior who died unjustly. This is why you are on a watch list and you need to make sure folks see Jesus in you. But you're also on another watch list. For notice the shepherd of our soul. He has his sights on you as well. He calls himself the overseer. He's your overseer. He's looking at you. He's watching you as well. But not to pick you apart. Rather to pick you up. Not to scrutinize and analyze you, but rather to save you and heal you. Oh yes. Both man and God are watching you. And that's why we need to live our lives in submission to both.